The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark chapter 13, verses 1 to 13. And the word of God speaks to us like this. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, Opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the signs when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the very word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Chad Puckett. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is a treat just to get to be here, to turn around and see faces, people that we haven't seen in a while, people that I've, I haven't met before. It's always a joy. And then recognizing people who are coming in here carrying heavy things. We're, we're thankful for each of you. We're thankful for those who would, who would come and, and say, I'm not even sure if I believe in this Jesus. We're, we're just, we would love an opportunity to get to meet you, to sit down with you wherever you find yourself on that list. Uh, we'll buy you a cup of coffee. We'll sit over lunch. Whatever it takes, just to sit and exchange, hear what's going on in your life, how you ended up with us. And so it is an honor to meet you, and we just want to make you know that you are welcome with us for every bit of it. We're in the middle of a study of Mark, and we've been taking this long walk through Mark together where we're trying to say, like, what is, what does the Bible say about Jesus? Beyond all the culture, beyond every piece of artwork you've seen, beyond whatever rumors we've got or just cultural baggage that we have around Jesus, what does the Bible say? So we're trying to take this long walk, and what we see walking through this particular book is it just continues to say there is a king, this Jesus, and, and he has a kingdom. And that king changes everything. And that's what we've seen from the first page of Mark uh, to this page. And what we will see throughout is that there is a king, he has a kingdom, and he changes everything. When we come to a passage like this, it, it, it is important for us to think about how are we reading it. How are, we, how are we engaging this? And so uh, in a second, we're going to dive into this passage. And I want you to think about how are we coming to this? I remember in college there was a class called the Bible as Literature. There's certainly people who, who come to the Bible as just simply like a great work 
that is to be read and put on a shelf just like other great works of history. Uh, there are people who come to the Bible and read it like a fortune cookie or just nice thoughts that are out there that you could take or leave. There's, but that's not how the Bible is given to us. It is given and called the very word of God, breathed out for us, written down. It is given to us for our good and to guide us through all of it. What I find happens for me and I think for most people in this culture is that we tend to read the Bible like a yearbook. Where we, if, we, if you were to get a yearbook, and I know there are a couple people here that are a part of a yearbook team, what happens when people get a yearbook is that they go right to the back and they look for their name and what pages they're on, and then they just turn to that page. And we start looking for it. And what happens often to us is that we go to different parts of Scripture and we just start reading it like, where am I on this page? But while the, it's important for us to catch that while the Bible applies to us. It isn't about us. The Bible is about this king. And so I want to pray for you, and I want you to pray for me, (laughs) that we would be people who actually read the Bible for what it is, and that we don't just go through the motions of another religious service. And so we want to ask God to meet us this morning. Would you join me right there? Father, thank you. Thank you for this morning. Help us to be people who are less concerned about sitting up straight and looking apart and more concerned about who you are and what you have told us. Help us to be people who take your word, apply this, and by your grace, live differently because of it. And so God, meet us this morning. Help us do the work to understand what you've given us for our good. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, we have some work to do, and we're going to need to be people who actually kind of put our thinking caps on with this. We've got a section here that is dealing in in some measure with a topic, and that topic is eschatology, and that's a big word, right? That's one of those stained glass Christian words in which it simply means uh, a study of the last things, the final word, so to speak. It, it's a, a study uh, that talks about things in the future, this prophetic word from Jesus, which is important for us. It's important for us, but it, it requires that we read the Bible carefully, that we listen carefully, that we try to apply carefully, because there are ditches to fall into all around. There's all sorts of, uh, of ditches that people fall into right here. And I just want to take a second to name two of those. When we come to topics like this, one of the things that happens is that people get excessively dogmatic, meaning like we, we're like, this is what I know, this is what I've read, this is what I picked up, and this is the only way. We can become arrogant. We can become condescending even of people who have come from a different perspective or a different background. We can almost be like competitive in it of like, I'm going to win this argument. If anything, when we come to spots in scripture or otherwise, where we come to spots of debate, Christians should be marked by kindness. And particularly where it comes to theological issues in which we might have differing opinions on. And so that's a ditch that people can fall into right here. There's this other ditch that we come to often, and and I see a lot of people fall into this, where we just throw our hands up in the air. We become passive and lazy or disinterested about things that the Holy Spirit, 
that the apostles have written about, that God himself has spoken about, and that we have given it for us once and for all in his Bible. We can, we can come to passages of scripture in which we just kind of like, I don't know what's going to happen, so I'm just going to move on and not think about that. Hey, friends, that is, that's actually a really unhealthy cop-out about things that are important enough to be included for all time in Scripture. And so as we read this, let's not just kind of disengage and check out. Let's actually do the work to see what's happening right here in this passage. Because there's actually parts and there's space for for unity right here in a passage like this. All historically Orthodox Christians believe in the return of Jesus throughout history. All Orthodox, or all historically Orthodox Christians believe in the end of sin and death and suffering and evil by the person and work of Jesus. Throughout history, that has been true. All historically Orthodox Christians believe in the new heavens and a new earth that is promised to us in Scripture. And all historically Orthodox Christians believe in the resurrection of the dead. Those are things that are held out, and there's spaces for unity even as we come to a passage like this. And so as we, we approach Mark 13, hopefully humbly, hopefully with our, our thinking caps engaged, as we approach this passage, I think there are a couple spots, or there's plenty of spots, but there, there's some spots where we can easily get bent out of shape. There, there are spots where we can get prickly and start to think like, wait, I don't like the sound of that. That's a pretty good indicator. That's one of those flags that goes up of like, wait, how am I reading this? How am I approaching other people? There are spots right here for us to to get bent out of shape. And sadly, what has become the default belief of many Christians in the West, the default belief with so many of us in Bible Belt America in particular, but the West in general, around the rapture, around tribulation, around this new heaven and what the ends will look like. So much of our beliefs has been shaped by Western thought that began in the 1830s. And we'll get into this more in the weeks to come, but this teaching, if the church has been around for 2,000 years since Christ walked this earth, so much of what we believe in the West right here about what will happen in the end has just started in the 1830s. It's a simple spot where we get uh, bent out of shape right here in these A second way that we get kind of prickly around this right now, it would be easy for us to even immediately get bent out of shape, is when we start to think about the word judgment. That is an unpopular word in our day and age. We don't like to think or talk about eternal judgment. Don't bring that up in polite company. Don't talk about eternal judgment. Don't talk about anything associated with God holding people accountable or that your sin will find you out. Don't talk about judgment. And and also don't talk about temporal judgment, that there will be judgment in this place as well. Those are really hard conversations that for so many young Christians or non-Christians, it's one of those topics that you throw your hands up and like, I don't want to hear about that. I want to encourage you, though, to step into this passage and recognizing that chapter 13 is a study in God's judgment. 
what that's looked like and might look like in the days ahead. But the Bible speaks a better word. And so we don't, we don't even want to just ignore it. And maybe what's more important is that we don't get to ignore it. You see, Mark 13 is not pessimistic. It's not a pessimistic word. It's an honest word. It's an honest warning from this King Jesus to pay attention and to be on guard. It's something for us. It's, it's for us to, to recognize this contrast of our own natural tendencies for comfort and just to think that we're just going to get to step out of all pain and difficulties in this world. And, and, and yet, with the incredible love of this God, this King, we are warned. And so our hope over the next three weeks as we walk through Mark 13, our hope is that together we can interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. What is murky or, or difficult to understand that we would interpret in light of Scripture, which is clear and easier to understand. That we would together do the work of reading this in context. In context. That we would come to the text and read it in context and see what is being said. And then that we would apply these things for our growth in Christ. That we would apply it so that we would be formed more and more into his image. That we would be prepared for what lies ahead of us. That we would see that God in his goodness has spoken to these things. And we, we recognize as a church that this is going to lead to questions. There are going to be questions. We had questions after the first service. We anticipate questions after this one. And we're glad about that. And because there are questions around this topic in particular, we even want to put together an evening. We've, we've already scheduled it. We put it on the calendar. We've got an evening around creatively titled the evening of eschatology. We've got this. And, and praise God, we have in our city, in Oklahoma City at least, we have one of the, the foremost thinkers, theologians, writers, pastors uh, that is living right now. Super helpful. We've asked Dr. Sam Storms to come and help us just think through these issues and these topics. And so Sam will be available March 23rd, and we'll do this at our downtown congregation, and you are invited to join us. We want you to be a part of it because these are real things. We don't want to just check out and disengage from it. And so I hope that you'll put that on your calendar. Uh, having spent a little time with Sam, I think that he will come. He'll have some thoughts for sure. And he will take any questions that you have. He loves answering questions and talking about these things. Okay? So think about that. And let's dive in right here. Let's dive in and do some work around this text. Let's see first what the people here in the text think is great and what God actually draws their attention to as greater. Verse 1, and he came out of the temple. One of his, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And right off the bat, right off the bat, Jesus is coming out swinging. Do you see how amazing this is right here? Do you see how incredible this is, Jesus? Isn't it marvelous? And Jesus says, it's all coming down. 
And try to picture this for a second. Try to picture how amazing this temple is, and yet this God is unimpressed. It truly is a wonder of the world, and yet God is unimpressed. He has no need for this temple, and he has no need for fancy in general. He doesn't have any need for it. The temple itself was around 35 acres. It's enormous, this temple that's there. The walls are said to have stood 150 feet high. Some of the stones that made up the the temple walls were 60 feet long. 60 feet long, 11 feet high, 8 feet deep for a single stone making up these walls. Historians have said, have described the temple that it looked like a mountain of marble decorated with gold. That it looked like it could stand for a thousand years or more, says Josephus. And then think about the space beyond just the dimensions of it. The temple is the center of worship for the Jewish people. It's not only that, it's the center uh, of their national identity. This is the, 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 the beacon calling people back to the, the temple. That's what the temple is. The temple is the place of sacrifice. This is what the temple is significant for. And Jesus right here is with these people who are standing outside of the temple and they're thinking, hey, the king is here. See, these are his disciples, right? These are the ones following after Jesus. And they're thinking, the king's here and he's about to take over, right? There's a king, there's a kingdom and we're standing outside of this marvelous castle kingdom right here and he's gonna take over. And, And catch this. He is. Just not how they expected. This king is taking over. He's changing everything. Just not how they're expecting it. In a much greater way. Pick it up in verse 3. And he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So again, we're painting a picture here. Jesus is outside this incredible building. He's outside of it. And now in verse 3, we have him on the opposite side. There's a valley. He's crossed out of the temple. He's dropped in the valley. And after about a 15-minute walk, he's on the Mount of Olives sitting there looking back at this place. And they're like, hey, tell us the sign. Jesus is in a place that is anything but great right now. And the the followers don't ask, like, wait a second, what did I hear you say? Say that again to my face, Jesus. They're not saying any of those things. They're, They're actually saying, okay, I'm with you. When will this happen and what will be the signs? And it's important right here for us to catch their question. Because this is where so many of us right here today will get tripped up in how to read this. The disciples asked, when? When will this take place? 
The disciples are shocked and they're confused. And their first question is about timing. And so many people read this passage and they think it's referencing the end of times. And then there are other people that come to this passage and they say, no, it's entirely, every bit of it is about Jerusalem that will eventually be destroyed in 70 AD, which happened. And when we read this, the whole chapter, what we get is that it seems like what's happening here is Jesus has two focal points in mind. And at least the first 31 verses are almost entirely focused around the destruction, the physical destruction of Jerusalem that is coming in 70 AD. That is what is happening, and that is what he's speaking of in context right here. These things that he'll name as the birth pains that are going at it. But catch this. Catch what's symbolically happening. God has left the building. This building that was never actually the center of their worship. It always pointed to something greater. This building that was actually never supposed to be their identity, there was always something it was pointing to. And this building that housed the sacrifice, but the sacrifice was never supposed to be ultimate. It was always pointing to something greater. And that greater has arrived. This Jesus who is on his way to the cross, this Jesus who is the perfect sacrifice, and this Jesus who in his body is making a statement that there's no more need for this because the real center and the real sacrifice is here. That's what's happening. So we're in verses 1 through 13 today. We're we're talking about these verses, and the direct context of of these verses in Mark 13 is clear about the event that's coming. There is destruction that is going to happen, and it's helpful for us to skip ahead from our verses today. We'll skip to verse 30 and see where we're getting this. In verse 30, Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. This generation will not pass away. That's a real context clue that's helpful for us. And and because I I actually want you to come on March 23rd to our stuff, but because I also think that Dr. Sam Storms is really helpful for us on this, I want to show you a quote of Dr. Sam Storms around this very verse. Notice what he says, and I realize it's wordy. Put your thinking cap on for just a second and work with me here. Some try to evade this point by arguing that the word translated generation actually means race. And that Jesus, therefore, was simply saying that the Jewish race would not die out until all these things took place. But this would require the Greek word genos, whereas the word here is genea. And furthermore, the word genea occurs 27 times in the gospel and never once means race. Okay, that's a mouthful. I don't always just directly quote commentaries up here, but like, like that's a mouthful. I realize that, and I'm giving that to you intentionally because it should strike us 27 times that word is used, and it always means these people. 
Sam goes on, the very next thing, he goes on to show you all 27 of those verses. Hey, listen, we won't go through all of those today, unless, Julie, you'd like to come back up and read all of those for us. We can do that. Notice the middle. Every time the words, this generation occur in the Gospels, they mean Jesus' contemporaries. That helps us when we're reading this. That helps us when we're going through every bit of it. And as we'll see over the next few weeks, Jesus does, this passage speaks to things that are cosmic and beyond Jerusalem. This, this passage, there are passages where Jesus draws on that language. There are passages where Jesus is speaking to an ultimate judgment and an ultimate coming. And those things matter to us. But the main subject of these verses, grammatically, contextually, and historically, are the destruction of Jerusalem that will happen in 70 AD. And contrast this to what is very popular in Bible Belt end times teaching, that Jesus is going to somehow just pluck us out of difficult times. That, that we'll, we'll be driving along and then your car is going to be empty through all of this. That it's easy to think like God is just going to keep you in comfort and not allow you to go through that as we read this text. Jesus is not giving his disciples a list of signs that will start uh, to occur that right before he returns. He, he isn't saying when you see these things happen, you'll know that the second coming is here. In fact... The only sign that Jesus actually gives of his final return will be his final return. It's important for us to catch. The only sign that will be given of Jesus' final return is his final return. So the hard work that you and I have to do in a, in a section like this is to read these words as Jesus' disciples would have first heard and understood them. That a time is coming, a time is coming when, when Jesus will no longer be there in person to lead them and encourage them. Jesus knows this. They're hearing this. They've heard it before. And they will hear it again. But he loves them enough to tell them the truth. He loves them enough to tell them the truth. And so let's work our way through what Jesus tells them and, and see this contrast between what they want to know, signs and times, what they want to know, and what Jesus thinks they need to know. That's important for us right here. Because they've just asked, tell us the time and tell us the signs to be looking out for. How does Jesus answer this question? Verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. You see, this, this actually happens. In the days following Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, this happens. It sounds and is recorded all over the book of Acts. You get this time immediately following, and you get names listed out throughout Acts, Theotis. Judas the Galilean, Simon the magician, bar Jesus, the false prophet. You get these people listed out that actually came in his name, came claiming these things, who were false prophets, just as predicted. 
It goes on in verse 7. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Let me just pause right here. Because this is a dangerous moment for us as we read this. This is a really dangerous moment. I feel it. You feel it. All of us feel it. Because we are hearing of war and rumors of war. And it would be easy for us to just kind of get sucked into that, this is what he's talking about. And it's true there is a war that is ugly and nasty and our hearts should break for these people involved. And it's true that there are rumors of war. But don't conflate the two that that's what's happening here. Because these original hearers, these original disciples have directly in front of them Jesus pointing to this temple and saying, this is coming down. And you're going to hear about all sorts of things, but this is coming down. And what's interesting right here is even if you're not fully on board with that right now, the application is roughly the same to these people right here in this moment as it is to us in our moment, which is, hey, be on guard and pay attention because there are all sorts of other things happening. And God isn't promising them that they're going to be plucked out of difficult days. In fact, it gets uglier here in a second. They're going to be right in the middle of these difficult days, and yet God is with them through all of it. And so as we read about Ukraine, as we read about these different pieces, let's remember and just recognize it for what it is, a real human tragedy that is terrifying and horrific that we're asking God to meet these people in, to bring peace, to bring healing, and ultimately to rescue these people, okay? So back to the text. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And, and we know this to be true. You can pick up, pick up any history book, and you will find stories of these very things. Most history books record wars and what happens in places. But I'll just draw one to your attention. Tacitus, Roman historian Tacitus, contemporary of the times, records these things from 14 AD to 68 AD. And that time frame matters. Notice what he says, and I love it. Disturbances in Germany. Commotions. It's a good word right there. Commotions in Africa and Thrace. It speaks of Gaul, Parthians, Britain, and Armenia. These things are happening all over the place in which there are wars and rumors of wars in the time that is being spoken of right here. Exactly what Jesus is talking about happened. It happened. The rest of verse 8 goes on to say this. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pain. Oh, what a scary word. What a scary word for describing the age. These contractions that are coming that will heave you. And yet, it happened. History records these things happening. Before 60 AD or in 60 AD, Laodicea, Heropolis, Colossae are all devastated. They're all devastated by earthquakes. 
There were others recorded. You can see them right there. Crete, Smyrna, Miletus, Samos, Apamia, Campania, and Rome all experienced earthquakes in this period of time. And then during this period of time, you have three major famines that come upon these people. And so friends, like false teachers, frightening rumors of war, natural disasters will tempt all of us, these people directly and even now, to panic. Those things are scary. But God loved them enough to tell them and to warn them. To warn them that these things are coming. Notice, notice what he gives them from this point on. In verse 9, he says, But be on your guard. Be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. Be on guard. These are only the birth pains. You see, this world... For these people in their lifetime would be turned upside down. They would experience contractions. And Jesus says to these followers, to these men right here in this moment and to all of us in our moment, that we're called to be like him, to live at this place where the purposes of God and the pains of this world cross paths. We're to recognize that there are contractions in this world that are ugly and painful and to be on guard against all of them. But you can kind of feel the tension, right? You can feel it. You can feel it from here. Maybe you're thinking it and it's okay. It's okay to think that. You're like, maybe you're in this spot right now where you're thinking, okay, Chad, uh, let's just say I'm with you. I'm kind of tracking all this. Okay, Chad, I'm with you. But what do you do about verse 10? What do you do about verse 10, which says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations? How do we handle that? How do we rectify this? I'll just, I'll just give you one example. In, in Colossians, Paul gives this address, and he starts to talk about it, and he says this, and the word of the truth of the gospel has come to you as it has also in all the world. It's come to you as it has in all all the world. You see that all the world is, is actually a specific term. And we talked about genos and genia. And again, we're geeking out a little bit in this, but it's important for us. In this word right here, all the world is ta ethnos. And, and that is significant to us because that word actually means race, people, and tribe. And so what is being said right here? Is it how does, how does Paul get to say this? How does Jesus get to say, this is going to go out to all the nations? Well, it's speaking specifically to this known world at the time, to this race and tribe of people that any and everywhere these Jewish people would hear and that would move out to this Gentile world around them and that that known world would hear. And Paul, with, with all sincerity, can say this world that we know of, this inhabited world that is mapped out, this, this world that we're incorporating has heard. 
And we recognize that there are other places in that world. But in the context and the moment and to the people of this time, that's all they knew. That's all they knew. So the gospel has come to you as it has in all the world. He was speaking about the Mediterranean world, the known world at the time, and the gospel was preached across that world in the first century. And so the call is clear to these people and to these people. And whatever the consequence, they're to hold to the truth and to speak it even in scary places, even in painful circumstances. That this good news is to be preached to all people everywhere. That this good news is to go around the world. It's not to be hoarded up and just kept to ourselves. That Jesus cares enough to tell his followers then and now the truth that there is judgment coming. That there is a judgment coming. And friends, there are Christians right now who are going through incredible suffering. There are people in different parts of the world who are being persecuted in many of the same ways that are described right here. They're going through really horrific spots. There are Christians suffering in Ukraine right now. We have friends that are in some dark spots in which the police are outside of their church today while they gather, not to help them, but to intimidate them. There are people that are, are suffering really difficult things even in our world today. And yet, for most of us, I don't want to presume on all of us, but I'm going to make a general statement about living in the West right now. For most of us, what we find, the temptation is not to panic because of persecution and difficulties. The opposite is true in that we live in such comfortable lives and existence that the temptation is just to be stagnant and to sit back. That instead of being on guard against the really difficult things, we're not even on guard against the comfortable, easy life that we have. And we become lazy and, and complacent around these things. We become cynical. We start thinking that nothing's really going to happen. That, that God is going to protect my comfort at all costs. That God's going to help me and that certainly he cares about me. I'm an American and so uh, I'll be here and nothing hard could ever come our way. And what we read from this specific chapter, but what we read from the whole of scripture is God is less concerned about our comfort and he's far more concerned about our holiness and, and our walking with him. It's easy to think that the kingdom of God is just a bunch of happy thoughts. I'll take it or leave it and move on right there. But this passage reminds us otherwise. And listen to how it closes. Verse 11, it says this, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. Full stop. How are you not supposed to be anxious right there? How are you not supposed to be anxious? Be a human being for a second. Like, you're anxious. You're scared about this happening right there. How is your heart not just bursting out in fear and trembling in this moment? Don't be anxious. He goes on. Don't be anxious with what you're to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour. 
For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Hey, real quickly. As I was sitting with this over the past few weeks, and that line in particular, I just want to be really honest with you. That line, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, did not bring me hope. And I'll tell you why, because uh, I know how weak I am at enduring. I know that I can sing these songs at one moment and then some knucklehead probably driving out of here is going to cut me off in traffic and I'm just going to be a monster. I know that from one moment to the next that I can want and and desire to follow after Jesus and then the slightest discomfort occurs and I'm I'm anything but. And I don't think I'm alone because we live in a space and a time in which we are addicted to our comforts. We think that this is all about us. We think it's all about just making you happy and, and giving you your best life and all these things. And yet God has a different purpose in all of it. It matters how we read this book. And so how do we do this? It actually is hopeful and it actually is good for us that Jesus doesn't ask his followers to face dark days alone. He actually says that the Holy Spirit is going to be with you. The Holy Spirit is going to give you the words that you need for the moment. The Holy Spirit will see you through. He gives them the power and the presence of this Holy Spirit to guide them. And so this morning, you may be struggling. You may have drug yourself in here and just saying, I don't even know up from down right now. You may be struggling to endure. You may be hanging on. You may be feeling like, I don't know what's left. You may have been struck by suddenness this week. You may have been surprised by darkness this week. And the answer is to look to Jesus. Avoid the trap of just thinking that God would never allow me to take tough days. No, the answer is to look to Jesus and watch him meet you in those moments. Watch him meet you in those dark places. Watch him meet you in those places of endurance because he is the one who endured to the point of death on the You may be looking for an escape hatch from your circumstances. You may be feeling like, I can't take any more of this. And the answer is not some building that you attend once a week or or some place that we go that seems beautiful and seems great. The answer is the truly great one, Jesus. And that he'll meet you in that. And that he sees you and recognizes all of it. And you may be looking for your temple at your things that you think are great and awesome. And it probably isn't a building. Probably isn't a building. It's probably a bank account or a job or some status symbol or some measure uh, of being a, your good personness that's on display. That it's easy to say, look how great I am. 
Look how great this is in my life. Look how great all these things are going in my life. And, and yet, this God loves you enough to draw you right back and to warn you that there is something greater out there. There is a great judgment to come, but there is a greater God to meet you through all of it. This God loves you enough to tell you the truth and to warn you and to share every bit of it that there is a coming judgment. And he says, prepare, be on guard, stay alert through all of it. He pulls no punches. He hides none of the ugly. He, direct, he is direct with his warning and he is incredible with his provision, even giving you himself. He sent his one and only son to be that substitute, that perfect sacrifice for every bit of it. Will you bow your heads with me?